We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast presented by MyBookie. What is up? My name is Alan Williams. Sitting here with James D. Virgilio, the man, the myth, the legend, the reason you're all here to hear his analysis. Excited to be here. We're going to have a chance to interview our friend Scott Strickland. We're going to talk about last week's games, next week's games. We're so, so close to having SEC football. Another week. But before we get into all of that, James, we have the best patrons. Why don't you thank some of them? We really do, Alan. We're so thankful for all of you uh, listening to the show, whether you support us with a dono or not. If you're new to the show or if you've been listening since episode one five years ago, if you like the content, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or become a patron on Patreon. We have some new patrons this week, Alan. There are all sorts of dono levels, small, medium, large, Trask donos, which is my favorite current dono level, XL, Hundo Bombs, all sorts of goodness we have out there for you. New patrons, Ali Perry and Anita Bajay, holding it down for the ladies. In fact, we do have quite a few lady listeners, which uh, we're always thrilled with. A large dono from Tyrone Watson. Tyrone, welcome aboard. And then some Trask-sized donos, all upgrades from Evan Davis, Jason Landry, and David Sugar. David is dedicating his dono to his two sons, Ronan and Remy. Ronan's three years old and is listening to this podcast. I have that on good authority from David. He might be our youngest consistent listener. Except for Remy, who's three weeks. And Remy does try to listen, he said. His wife gives him a hard time for that. But David, thank you. Jason Landry, my good buddy from college, uh, who I always get to mention every single year. And I think of playing the mascot games in NCAA football against. Uh, But thanks to all of you for coming on board and for upgrading I love that the Trask Dono category is is getting filled up. Absolutely fantastic. Of course, we'd be remiss without mentioning Alexander Leventhal, who has been mentioned on every single episode since we started doing donations. He is the man, a wonderful supporter. Thank you for your support, as always, Alexander. And our Dono legends, those who have either given a hundo bomb or given $300 or more in total support, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, 
Stash Milicic, Bobby Boucher. We know who you really are, though, Bobby. Uh, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kaine, and Nicholas Isaac. Thank you all so much. We love opening up every show thanking people because Alan and I are very grateful to bring you the content that we do. Okay, before we get to Scott, let's take care of some business from last week. Let's talk about that incredible slate of games. Not really, but there were some fun ones. Uh, you went four and three. I went a respectable three and four. Let's talk about it. Uh, Arkansas State lost to Memphis 24-37. Predictable, but they did cover. It's and fun. Arkansas State became a star, so to speak, in the yes. next week. And, and and keep in mind, we did two weeks of picks. So this was Arkansas State before you knew them. That's true. As the team that garnered an upset. They were competitive in that game. Allen, you win via the spread there. I would like to say... I have to cherish every week I beat you because you trounced me last year in the spread pick. So I'm one game up on you. Okay. You uh, handily won this one because BYU absolutely slaughtered Navy 55 to three. The BYU coach came out afterward and said they hadn't really practiced tackling and it showed, Uh, you know, I think we are going to get a lot of these really weird uh, results. Not that BYU wouldn't have normally beaten Navy, but maybe not in this fashion. Just absolutely crunched them. Disappointing loss for Navy, but I I am high on BYU. I was before this game. They think they have one of their best teams ever. And given their schedule, it's entirely possible they could go undefeated. So keep an eye on BYU this season. UAB keeps it respectable against Miami. Miami wins 31-14. Are you buying any Miami stock after this game? I don't buy it, but certainly they're moving in the right direction. They're recruiting better. That was a competent win, as you mentioned, against a game UAB team, but nothing to be super thrilled about. There's nothing that says this team is going to be a contender in the immediate future. Clemson easily handles Wake Forest 37-13. The game was not this close. They were crushing them. Wake Forest also a competent football team now. That's the one thing it shows. I mean, Clemson is extremely good, and you see that. And Wake Forest is is not a bad football team. They're going to no, do fine no. in the ACC this Clemson year. Clemson was still toying with them, though. Correct, which is how good Clemson is. And I think that's that's what I'm saying is is Wake Forest is actually, credit to them, a competent football team. And, and they're obviously nowhere near the caliber of Clemson. Duke keeps it close for a while against Notre Dame. Ultimately, Notre Dame pulls away 27-13. Yeah, Duke was, was game for a long time. In fact, only down a couple of points early in the fourth quarter. Notre Dame, disappointing start for them. Their fans not happy as they usually are not in the Brian Kelly era. If they get to the playoffs, they get trounced. If they play games like this against Duke, it's not so great. So we'll see how it goes for them in the ACC this year. It should be interesting. The ACC, not obviously a difficult conference, but they're not playing a lot of Pac-12 teams. So it will be more difficult. There you go. Well, yeah, Notre Dame is interesting. I don't think this is a great result from them. But again, I, I wouldn't play the overreaction game from week one this year too much because of how much teams are able to fully practice depending on position groups being held out. So if you have a wonky result, I wouldn't necessarily overreact to it. Although this might've been just on par. We'll see. We'll see how the trends hold. Syracuse goes down to number 18 UNC, a very frisky UNC six to 31. Mac Brown proving that he can coach and that he has built a program there already. Syracuse confusing, baffling was a flash in the pan. Now maybe safe to say, Blip on the radar, and they have gone the other way. Very disappointing result for them. They were handled easily by UNC. Are you buying the Sam Howell hype as like a Heisman contender? No. 
no, he's not going to win the Heisman. But I am buying the the very competent program that they have built there, which is rather remarkable. It's not, well, not that he's going to win the Heisman, but that he maybe is in line for like second team All American type of buzz. I don't know yet. I'm going to need to see more. Okay. I'm going to need to see more. Okay, Georgia Tech, the Rambling Wreck, pulls it out against FSU, sixteen to thirteen. I correctly picked this one. Had faith. And my Georgia Tech brother and you did not. Big win for them. Program changing win, at least perception wise. Well, the jury remains. Jury's still out on whether how big a win this actually was. But FSU loses another opener. What was I thinking when I was banking on eleven and a half there, buddy? Uh, I don't know what I was thinking. I thought, hey, Georgia Tech's not ready yet. They're still transitioning. And I really like Jeff Collins. I've said it consistently. I think he's an excellent coach. My respect for him has only grown by that much more. Uh, really remarkable result. Not that Florida State's a competent and polished product. They are not. But what he's done in two years at Georgia Tech, coming from triple option to this, is nothing short of remarkable. He also beat Florida State with the quarterback recruit it's true. that Florida State did not get, which has rubbed incredible salt in the wound Not of that they did not State get. Fans. They seemed like they moved on from him as the— yeah. he was committed to did, Florida State. Didn't want. Didn't yes. care, per se. Or indifferent, maybe, too. And then they have quarterback issues of their own. They still have offensive line issues. They were definitely much more competent than it's under true. the Taggart era. So if I'm, a, if I'm a Knowles fan, I have to be realistic and say, this team is not built well. We have serious issues still in a lot of position groups. But the team was playing infinitely more infinitely more competent football. Wasn't pretty. Wasn't good. They'll have to use this entire season to see how well they improve. Just like we talked about with Dan Mullen in year one. Does the team get better week to week? That's my metric for Mike Norvell, but a really ugly start at Florida State. They've lost four games in a row as their openers now since the first time, 1976 or something, Bobby Bowden's first season. So not pretty things there. I can't say that I'm sad at all. Yeah, I mean, it was a joy to watch, let me say that. But, I, yeah, again, if I'm FSU, I don't I don't jump off the Mike Norvell bandwagon. Too many weird things dealing with so much in the offseason – he was not going to win an ACC title in year one or something like that. So a bump of years to be expected, but not the start they wanted. Let's talk about some of the other games that we didn't mention. We did not put Louisiana Lafayette against Iowa State, and we should have, because they headlined the fun belt taking down the Big 12. They beat Iowa State 31-14. The clones just lay a turd on the field, and Louisiana Lafayette is good. They are good, but this is something we talked about last season and even maybe the end of the season before, was if you're coaching Iowa State, you need to leave because you have a window where you look really great. And now, right, the bloom is a little bit off the rose. End of last year, now this loss, maybe, maybe there's a crashing back down to earth. I don't know. Iowa State was clearly a victim of COVID. I don't know if they practice special teams even for one second. Two kickoff returns. Two kickoff returns. What a blocked punt. I mean, I don't, I don't know what they were doing. That seems like one of the easier things to practice, right? Uh, but they did not practice it. A lot of teams did struggle with it, to be fair. But they were they were handled in this game. Iowa State did not have a single, a single play, Allen, for more than 20 yards against Louisiana. Not one at home. That's bad. So not a great look. Great work for Louisiana. They are now ranked number 19 in, the, in the COVID rankings. Uh, pretty wild stuff, but a, a crazy upset for sure. 
Arkansas State beat Kansas State 35-31. Let me go ahead and mention Coastal Carolina beats Kansas 38-23. Kansas was down 28-0 at one point. We have that noted. Texas Tech narrowly beats Houston Baptist 35-33. So let me ask you, combining all these things together, and you can mention anything you want about any one of these individual games, but, I mean, can the Big 12 recover from this? Does the Sun Belt champion deserve to be in over the Big 12 champion? Because they just beat three, or at least two decent Big 12 teams. I mean, that's astonishing. I think this is potentially a death blow to the Big 12 depending on how things go. And what I mean by this is there are circumstances where the tiebreaker is going to be, ooh, those non-conference Big 12 games were bad. How can you possibly have teams lose to the Sun Belt, which is one of the worst conferences in all of football? And not just lose, but in some cases, you know, get handled. I don't know how you reconcile that, especially if you look at teams like the SEC that are only going to play each other. Right. So you're not going to have any any weird non-conference result even to look at. Uh, it's it's really bad. Oklahoma has a cakewalk schedule already. They're only going to wind up playing Texas in the eyes of most people. And now you have these results. Yeah, I guess it won't matter in the end because of, you know, well, I don't know whether we'll get to the Big Ten here in a second, but uh, if it does come down to it, this might just be something that you can't undo unless, you know, Oklahoma can always go undefeated and they're going to make it in because they're Oklahoma. But man, just a bad look for the conference. Even with, like I said, don't overreact to wonky results. When you take all these combined, that's just really tough. Yeah, really bad. And Les Miles getting smashed by Coastal Carolina. Yeah, they look confident is, last year. and they is frustrating and weird for them. They pay him a lot of money. They bring him there. Kansas State bring back Bill Snyder again, I guess. Every time he leaves, they kind of trend in the wrong direction. And then Texas Tech is is dealing with a lot of COVID-related stuff. But Houston Baptist, an, an FCS school, you have to survive a two-point conversion. A lot of zany, zany things going on. Oklahoma did look really good. Spencer Rattler, who is on QB1, a program I like to watch. It profiles the, the three best or three of the best college quarterbacks uh, every single year was kicked out of high school halfway through his senior year when he was uh, the number one overall recruit. No one knows why to this day. If you know why, email me, please. I cannot find out the answer. I don't think anyone knows it. Uh, interesting guy, six feet tall, undersized, a ginger, but really, really good, can sling the rock. Now, he played no one, but it doesn't matter. He He's someone to keep an eye on there at Oklahoma and the fourth in a row from Lincoln Riley, who is, in fact, a quarterback whisperer. And then Texas and Sam Ellinger. And Sam Ellinger tends to put up huge numbers against inferior teams. So keep an eye on him there. Those two look, you know, capable. For sure. And I would, I mean, Oklahoma and Texas, I think everyone would expect to be the class of this conference along with maybe Oklahoma State. But it's not good that your middle tier teams are losing to the Sun Belt. And so, and you could say like wonky results because of COVID, but the Sun Belt teams had to deal with the same stuff with less resources. So, just really tough for them. And I, I like some of those programs. I like the clones. Obviously I'm a fan of what Kansas state normally does, but man, I they're going to, this is a tough one to swallow. All right. Let's look at a coaching corner segment with a bonus one because we're recording on a Tuesday and not a Monday. First Georgia tech, Florida state, Allen. it's in the fourth quarter. Florida state is trailing 16, 13. There's four minutes to play and it's fourth and eight on the plus 38. So they're on Georgia Tech's 
38-yard line. Florida State has two timeouts remaining. Important information you need to know before you make the decision, Coach Allen. Georgia Tech, on their previous three possessions, went touchdown, touchdown, field goal. What do you do if you are Florida State? That's a tough one. I mean, also the factors in here, like how much do you trust your kicker? What, what you know? How are you feeling about your offensive defense? I don't know. Without that information, I don't mind going for it there. I'm usually in plus territory, like going for it. Although, you know, Georgia Tech had been moving the ball all game, even when they weren't scoring because they were turning it over. They had been moving the ball. So I think this is the right decision. Do you have some hot takes about it? This is not a hot take one. I think this is an interesting one because this is a good way to look into the things you should consider before you make a decision. So one, let's assume that we do what Florida State did and and we decide to go for it. Here's the factors that are in your favor. One, Georgia Tech has been scoring consistently. Two, if your punter does not effectively pin them inside the 20, then it's only 18 yards of field position, which is something but not significant per se. Two, there's still four minutes left and you have two timeouts left. So if you do stop them, you can, I mean, you can get the ball back, which Florida State did with a minute and 45 seconds left, which is a tremendous amount of time to drive to get a tying field goal. So that that's a lot of things going for you there. The main reason that you wouldn't go for this is to attempt to punt them deep and put sure. them within the 10-yard line. If you do that, the math becomes pretty favorable that you're going to get a field goal shot, especially in college. That's better than 55 yards. But that's not automatic. In fact, most college punters struggle to do touchbacks. They're not all Tommy Townsend. We had that luxury last season. So I don't mind them going for this one there. And I wouldn't mind if they punted either. I think kicking a field goal may have been the worst option for them because a 55 yarder is very unlikely from a college kid. And there's too much time in the game to do that. So go for it or punt it seem to be the two best decisions. And again, I think in this case, you could make a case for either one. Now on the flip side, Monday night game, the game that ended last night at one in the morning between the Broncos and the Titans was a theater of the absurd. The Titans are driving down the field. There's a minute and 10 seconds left, and they get in the 15-yard line of Denver. Denver has all three of their timeouts left, Alan, all three of them. Now, what do you think they do? Titans run the ball on first down. You think certainly they are going to call a timeout with about 58 seconds left to make sure they get the ball back to attempt to win the game. They do not do this. In fact, they don't use a single timeout. Wow. They get the ball back with 17 seconds left on their own 20-yard line, complete a couple of passes, and the game ends. After the game, their brand-new coach comes out and basically says, well, I felt like the Titans kicker was struggling, which Kostowski was really struggling, and we didn't want to, I don't know, mess up the Titans' decisions who also had timeouts of their own to call. They did call their own timeouts. They... He's not influencing the kick at all. That's completely irrelevant. We see this time and time again, Alan, misuse of timeouts at the end of games to make sure that you get the ball back. I don't care what you think about their kicker or what's happening. You call those timeouts and you give yourself as much time as possible, hoping that you make the kicker kick in the first place. That's your goal. What is your plan here? This is a Bill Simmons idea, um, but with the infinite resources, higher some sort of mathematician who can do the quick math. Cause a lot of times I don't think these coaches can in the moment where they're thinking about a hundred things, 
Now, this is a more obvious situation, but should I call timeout right now or should I do after one plate? That's easier to do if you're just sitting in the booth and you're not wondering about a million other things. Just have a guy who can do all those calculations and tell you you need to call timeout now or after this, these are your two options. And just tells the coach, he just trusts the guy's math. And if it comes down to a human situation, he can make the choice. But it's crazy to me they don't have that they entrust this to the head coach. Now, he still has to make the call, but you should have someone doing the math for you. And this is a situation where no one was telling him, no one was doing any kind of math. Uh, I was, of course, not up for that. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, being a head coach, you know, the skill sets are pretty varied, and one of them is not necessarily like in-game decisions. Which is baffling to think the coach is the main strategist. And again, it's very possible that somebody was in his headset saying, hey, should we take a timeout here? Do you want to call one? Do you want to use one? And he just froze and decided after the fact he would defend his decision by saying, well, we thought that the clock would potentially work against them. Well, Mike Vrabel is an excellent tactician. And maybe if you're going against a coach who's not paying attention, they'll run out of time on their own, like Willie Taggart. That's not going to happen in the NFL, especially not against a guy like Vrabel, who calls again his own timeout, beautifully engineers wasting all of their time. In fact, tries to score a touchdown to win the game because he doesn't trust his kicker and ultimately wins. But again, these coaches, Allen, are getting paid millions of dollars. And I sit and watch and think what you just said. Just get one of your interns who would love to be in the NFL to say, your sole job is to buzz into my headset and say, hey, we have three timeouts. Do you want to get the ball back? Call timeout. That's it. That's your sole job. That's it. Done. Put on your resume. I don't get it. Blows my mind. Makes no sense. Another thing that blows my mind is the Big Ten. Wow. What an incredible circus. So on one hand, we talked about them. We covered this in depth on our previous podcast. I'm not going to recover what we said about their decisions and what they were thinking, but now here they are. Reversing course, potentially. News today that the Nebraska AD is picked up on a hot mic telling yeah, so the we're president or chancellor. 345 right? here or so. Yeah. So when you listen to this, news, we don't yes. know. But supposedly Tuesday night, September 15th, is supposed to be an announcement. We know this because the Nebraska AD, maybe on purpose, who knows what Nebraska is doing, comes out and says there's some good news for the Big Ten. Presumably they will play again starting in October and find a way to make them their entrance into the playoff. Yet... Conflicting reports, Alan, that Maryland's out, Michigan State's out, Michigan is out, which despite John Harbaugh's incredible attempt to play football, his president is against him. It is a war of egos, so to speak. It's just the theater for the bazaar because all around them, the NFL has had a successful week one. College football, more or less, has launched and things have gone on. I'm not yeah, sure what I do think you think. The, the argument still remains like if everyone else is playing, this is what Ryan Day said. A couple, maybe a week ago, why are we not playing? It's very hard to answer that question. So there might be certain things at certain universities that would inform that decision, but the question still needs to be asked. Correct. And I think for me, it comes back down to what we concluded on the podcast, where no matter where you stand on the opinion of COVID, uh, whether you're you know someone who thinks I don't need this or we don't need that or society should be doing this, I'm of the firm opinion that we don't have a lot of concrete answers. And in fact, the word science get thrown, gets thrown around a lot, but we don't have a single academic study that has been undergone on COVID, a peer-reviewed study that you would say matters. And so anything we're looking at are studies in a lab or studies somewhere else or what someone thinks, or we have a heart issue. Those things could be true. They could also not be true. 
And therefore, is it reckless for the Big Ten to have canceled? No, I'm not going to say that. But what you mentioned is we live in a world today, unfortunately, I think, Alan, of tremendous CYA optics, where you want to just flow with the herd, even if you think the herd's not right. And in this case, the Big Ten, I think, thought they were going to push the herd in one direction. The herd went the other way, and now the herd seems to be successful, and you look foolish. And again, I think if the data was strong enough that, hey— this is really bad. We shouldn't be doing this. Then you just stick to your guns. Mm-hmm. But everyone is somewhere in between those two rails trying to figure out where they align. It's messy. It's difficult. It's funky. And I think you said it best. It's not comfortable for all their coaches and athletes to be practicing, by the way, every single week. They're not sitting on their hands. They're outside. They're practicing football, watching everyone else just play football. So kind of bizarre. We'll see what happens. Keep an eye on it. Also, Alan, the rankings do not include the Big Ten or the Pac-12. So we've had rankings that no one has ever seen before. We mentioned Louisiana, 19th, Tennessee, 15th, Kentucky, 23rd. What do you think of the rankings this year? Are you going to watch games and just sort of chuckle at at who's... Well, yeah, it'll be very strange. I mean, I think Louisiana, Lafayette, I mean, they probably have the best win so far. So they should be ranked maybe even higher than that if you're just going on what has happened so far. Uh, So, yeah, rank them wherever you want. I mean, eventually this will all shake out. I'm not someone who gets super hyped on, like, the preseason rankings or whatever. Um, But Tennessee, they might be the 15th best team in the country. That still might get them a 5-5 and record. You know, so that's that's what's tough about this is, like, uh, how how are the pollsters going to handle – like teams record wise, are they going to actually like say, okay, we think this team is better. Or are they just going to rank people by their losses? Cause that's going to lead to some interesting results. Yeah. And to me, this just exposes something we've already all known. Rankings are purely for entertainment purposes. True. And this just really polarizes that and lets you see what's always been true. They don't really matter at the end of the day, uh, unless you're a playoff team and those teams will separate themselves anyway. Uh, but you know, good, good for teams like Louisiana who, yeah, by the fun. way, dig into their schedule the only team, they've lost to only one team in the past 12, 13 games. Only one. Uh, Appalachian State, they lost twice. Other than that, they've beaten everyone. They've been so, really good. team on the rise, coach on the rise, keep an eye on them. Okay, Alan, some Florida news. Some big news in the waiver game that no one knows why and when and how they happen. <laughs> the waiver lottery. Right, but Justin Shorter, the five-star receiver, uh, now the highest-ranked player on our entire team is eligible for this season. How do you feel about that? I mean, I think it's great news potentially, right? So I think anytime you can acquire a talent like him, you move on that. Our coaches did, you know, transfers from Penn State. Anytime someone transfers without an obvious reason, there's immediate questions like why. You know, wasn't super successful in his first year. Doesn't mean you necessarily should be as a wide receiver, but obviously a really talented guy, seemingly the buzz out of camp that he's looked good. It can only be good news for us because of our depth of wide receiver. We, you know, a few returning guys and a lot of question marks. Now he's still another question mark, but the more talented question marks you can throw in there, the better off you'll be. So this is great news for us, just health availability wise. And he could be a game changing talent. We don't know. We haven't seen him at all, but great news for him and great news for UF. Yeah, certainly on paper, he's, he's extremely talented and we'll see what happens. It does give Trask yet another talented target and we're very top heavy at receiver in our season preview next week. 
We'll go in depth, of course, to what we're looking at. Uh, but great news there. Other wide receiver news, Alan, good news for Billy Gonzalez, the at times maligned head coach, or not head coach, but wide receivers coach for Florida, rather. All three of the Gators that were drafted made their team. Uh, Van Jefferson especially having an excellent camp with the Rams, an excellent start to the season. Do you think this will bode well for receiver recruiting down the future as now Dan Mullen and staff begins to build a resume of, of churning out not only good college receivers, but day one NFL ready receivers? I think it's got to only help. And, you know, Josh Hammond makes the practice squad with the Jaguars. Um, you know, with those expanded lists, he had a better chance, but still made it. And I, I think it's a really good look. If you have guys who are flaming out, that's going to be really negative. It doesn't matter how high they're drafted. You're going to see, you're going to, people are going to use that against you. So it's a great thing for, you have to publicize on social media. It's a great talking point. Look at these guys we're putting into the NFL who are having immediate success. And a good look for Billy G and that Van Jefferson, whose dad was an NFL pro, gave a lot of credit to Billy G. And so that's a, that's a program uh, enhancer for sure. All right, there was a fire at Ben Hill Griffin. I was sitting at my house. We had friends over while watching football, which was great. And then, oh, look, there's a fire at Ben Hill. It turned out to be a maintenance cart. The coaches were actually tweeting rather funny things. I know this again because my friends tell me these things. I try to you know, stay off social media as much as possible to keep myself sane. Uh, at any rate, fun stuff. I think Dan Mullen said you know, there'll be a fire in the swamp or something two <laughs> weeks from now, but we're not, we're not ready yet. Uh, were you worried when you saw the building on fire? I mean, was the there first any... shot I saw was just smoke coming out of the stadium. So yes, immediately I was like, what the heck is going on? And then quickly you see more text that the fire was out, you know, it was a golf cart or something that was on fire. I mean, you know, ends up being kind of comical, nothing damaged, but you know, people had fun on social media with it for about 10 minutes. Yeah. And it was one of those things where if, if we're Florida state, for example, all your fan base is making jokes about how it's like a dumpster fire. And it was nice to think that that's not the immediate correlation anymore with Florida football. In fact, nobody made that joke uh, that I saw anywhere, which is great. All right. Lastly, we have some merch news for you. Sadly, I don't have anything to really update you on. (laughs) No news. Other than to say, I promise, I promise that we are going to get merch available before the end of the season. It's going to happen. We're going to do it. We're going to get this logo done. That's the main problem is how can I send everyone merch if I don't have a logo? We do have a logo now that you've been seeing for years. We don't think that one's particularly great to slap onto things, but maybe we will. If it comes down to it, maybe we will. Uh, At any rate, that's the update on merch. It's going to happen. I promise you heard it here before the end of the season. Now it's time to give our official sponsor, my bookie, some love. It's winning season at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit and winning big bet on all sports, including live betting, which is my favorite way to bet. Alan, you can watch the game for a quarter or two, make a decision there and bet an adjusted line. It's simple. Make your picks, win big and collect your cash. Invest in your intuition. Select from hundreds of future bets. Or again, bet games in real time using my bookies live betting. Use the promo code GatorNation and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play. Sign up now as your winning season begins today. Visit mybookie.ag, enter your promo code GatorNation for a 100% deposit match up to $1,000. You are all welcome. Scott Strickland friend of the program, more importantly, athletic director at the University of Florida. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Hope, you, uh, hope you're doing well. We're doing very you ready well. ready for football? 
We're ready yes. for football, and we are ready to do this interview. We haven't told our listeners, but we'll tell them now. Scott's been very gracious. I have been going through audio engineering hell, for lack of a better term, to make this interview happen. Uh, Scott, thanks again for your patience. Uh, we're ready for football, and we are ready to talk to you uh, and get some answers to some questions that have been intriguing us for the past several months, I'd say. Well, I think we have to start with the elephant in the room here and talk about COVID-19 and college football. So as all of the conferences were deciding whether to move forward or not, like what were the factors that led you and the rest of the SEC leadership to move forward when other conferences had shut down? You know, that's a great question. Actually, uh, I got asked that question earlier today, and, and I'm hesitant to answer the question because we, we have a path but we we've, we've yet to play a game, so I don't I don't want to make it sound like we've, you know, we're, we're, there's no victory laps here. Certainly, um, we get through ten game regular season and postseason, we can all pat ourselves on the back. But um, you know, those of us who are in college athletics administration, you know, our job is to create opportunities for student athletes to have competition, and you know, obviously in this environment, you want to do so in as, in a healthy manner as possible. Um, and so I just I think that we didn't feel like in August when we made that decision that we were in, we were in position to um, you know it's a bad pun or but to punt at that point right we wanted to to still kind of play it out and see what would happen and we may, we felt like we had to make an announcement at that point about what plans would be and we felt like that you know starting into September gave us the best chance to do so. Um, trying to be as careful as possible not to make decisions any further out than, than was prudent just because things change as, as we've gone through this, we've seen things change and we wanted to, you know, the more time we gave ourselves, the more information we collect and the better chance we had of, of allowing our athletes to have competition. So really it was just the last thing you want to do is what we did in March when we looked at our, our basketball and gymnastics and indoor track teams and said, sorry, even though you're about to start your postseason, we're not, we're going to send you all home or look at your spring sport athletes like we did and, and do the same thing. That's the last thing you want to do. And so really it's, it's, you know, that we ended up where we did because we were trying to continue to give ourselves an opportunity to, to play games. And to this point, I still think we have a path and, and I'm, I'm optimistic but there's, there's there are still some challenges that we're going to face, and you know, on, on a week to week basis, and I think that's just the nature of of living in a COVID world right now. And last time we had you on the pod, you mentioned that hey, even if the SEC is the only conference going to play football, there would be an attempt to do so if, of course, it was in the best interest of all parties, the health of the players, etc. When you're looking at having a season and you're moving as you are day by day, week by week, you're doing things that that both Alan and I think are very wise starting the season later, you know, whether that's to allow uh, the potential, you know, outbreak of COVID on campuses as students arrive, give yourself and coaches time, whatever the reasons were there for when you are getting together and you're meeting with the other ADs and presidents of the universities, is there a discussion on what the acceptable level of risk is do you have targets and i know you don't need to share those but is it that kind of process where you're setting these rails that say as long as things stay within these rails we can keep moving forward and if they go outside of these we have to reassess um you know we've we've got a medical task force the sec has engaged that has 
from a medical perspective and the safety perspective, we've really relied heavily on them. And it's a representative from, from each of the schools, but it's not an athletic, for the most part, it's not an athletic department representative. You know, we have uh, one of the doctors from UF Health, Jay Cluxton, who's, who's uh, taking a leadership role on the SEC task force, who's, who's our representative here. Um, you know, so he and his colleagues, they, they, you know, they um, really vet the situation from a, is it safe to play? And we've had, uh, I mean, they have spent hours upon hours in calls trying to inform the decision that has been made. So, you know, wh now that we are getting ready to play games, we have, we're going to have criteria about availability of athletes, but, um, you know, this is, this is not uh, any kind of a science behind what I'm about to say, but it, it appears based on what we know thus far that being in a team setting and competing in athletics does not put you at any greater risk to contracting the virus as being a regular college student, not in a team setting. In fact, I would, I would say, I would argue there's probably more structure and more accountability if you're in the team setting and therefore probably have are less likely to be exposed to the virus. Not, not, 100%, but you're less likely. And so to me, that that was kind of one of the things that kept going through my head as the dis conversations were occurring is, are they going to be less safe in a team environment with us trying to play games? And I, I actually believe it's the other way. And, and um, you know, one of the one of the uh, data points, and, and this has not um, been, you know, uh, scientifically proven, but one of the one of the conversations we had with one of the pro leagues is in all of their studies um, from looking at MLB and NFL preseason uh, practices and NBA and European soccer and golf and tennis. Uh, there is, according, according to what we heard from this one pro league representative, there's no known transfer of the virus through sporting activity. Doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It's just nobody can identify that this is where this transfer took place. So um, you hear things like that and you hear from the sports, uh, the health people, the medical advisory staff, um, you know, get, I think that is what has informed why we think it is um, safe to, to have these competitions. Um, you know, you, you keep your fingers crossed that you don't have that, you know, that, that unicorn event where you have one student athlete get really sick. That has not happened. We have, you know, we've, we've not had um, any student athletes uh, or really anybody on our staff who who has had the virus, and we've had several, who has gotten really sick, anything you know beyond mild symptoms. And um, but uh, I, my belief is they would be less likely to get the virus altogether being in our in our environment of playing sports than they would be outside it. And this is an interesting thing to examine. You know, you're discussing obviously a, a conclusion based upon, you know, people doing studies as best they can in real time as opinions coming out of what happens and how this virus gets transmitted. And like anything else in life, you can have one person on one side of the conversation and someone else on the other side, you can have the big 10 and the sec. And the question that often gets asked, which I feel is a bit too reductive, but has to be thrown out there is, is the motivating factor for the SEC versus the Big Ten or the Pac-12, is it money? Is it just simply we need to do this because we need money to fund the athletic departments? Um, yeah, that, that's not the case. And that's, 
we're all going to have challenging financial situations this year, regardless of whether we play games or not. Um, you know, and, and there are, if you don't play games, there are a lot of expense savings that come from that, that help mitigate the lesser revenue coming in. So I, you know, the, the number one thing is uh, make sure you have an environment that keeps your athletes as safe as possible. Um, but again, I go back to, we, we don't, we don't, we don't have an enterprise of athletics on college campus because we want to make money. We have it because we want to provide athletic competition opportunities. It just so happens it's incredibly popular and it generates revenue that the university doesn't have to fund the enterprise. It self-funds itself and, in fact, gives a lot of money back over to the rest of campus. I, I looked at recently in the last dozen years or so, the UAA has given over $100 million back to the rest of the UF campus. So um, it, it is a successful enterprise because people – are passionate about the university and sports is a manifestation in our culture of, of things people are passionate about. But if, if, you know, w- you know, the, we walked away from a lot of money, meaning we collectively, the, the enterprise of college athletics in the spring by shutting down the basketball tournament. And, and um, that, that thing's a, as you know, it generates a lot of revenue. So I, I think there's, there's been a lot of decisions made during this process that have shown that it's not about money. Um, and it's going to be a challenging year financially because of all the circumstances that everyone's dealing with. But that was going to be the case whether we played games or not. Well, thank you for addressing that. We wanted you give an, wanted to give you an opportunity to address that because that gets floated out there a lot. And yeah, thank you for speaking on that. Let's go ahead and jump into just another topic of the schedule. The SEC uh, seems rather prescient for starting a little later than everyone else at this point. Um, so the start date of September 26th, why was that selected as a start date? What was the thinking behind beginning then, not before or after? You know, listening to uh, a lot of the medical experts, um, you know, they all knew that once campuses welcomed students back on, general student bodies back on uh, into the campus, that there was going to be an increase in numbers. And we've seen that across, you know, not just SEC schools, but across the country. Um, and, and then Labor Day in and of itself was going to be a, a potential bump event from a number standpoint. I don't know that we've really had, maybe we haven't had time, it's just a week, but we wanted to get as far away from those two things as possible and still be able to compete um, on the timeline that would allow us to, uh, to, to be a part of the CFP. And so, um, you know, Late September, uh, Florida, I think we started classes August 31st. We were the last SEC school, I begin, I, I believe, to begin classes. So um, most schools started coming back from mid-October through the end of uh, – mid-August through the end of August. Uh, you we, get, we were able, by picking the September 26th date, get past that, get past Labor Day. And then the other thing is, um, you know, I, th- I think what the pro leagues are doing can be – in. Uh, informative and so get, have a chance to watch the NFL for a couple weeks and and take notes and learn what they're doing um, and as it turns out there's other college games that are being played so we can we can do the same there so this is the one instance you know in the SEC and and uh, certainly with the Gators we love being first this was a, <laughs> a situation where I, you know, I I think coming in behind everybody else made a lot of sense so let me talk a, ask you a little bit about the creation of the SEC schedule there's a lot of, I don't know, scuttlebutt and kind of talk about how that went down. Uh, I'm not sure how much you're 
at liberty to say, can you talk a little bit about that process of creating that schedule of, you know, the opponents that got added, you know, the perception that the better schools, quote unquote, got an easier schedule in the draw? Well, you know, this is a was a Herculean effort by our league office and uh, one of the uh, associate commissioners, Mark Womack, who heads up scheduling. You know, it usually takes 18 months to put one year's schedule together because we get different drafts and we get to make recommendations and, and request about, you know, can we move our open date to this week? And, you know, we already have these non-conference games scheduled. Can we can we try to have you know, a road game coming in after this game, that kind of stuff. So normally putting a schedule together takes a long time. And obviously they're done years in advance. And, and Mark basically put this together in two weeks. And the, uh, the direction the ADs gave him was to try to try to make it as fair as possible from a, well, uh, not just with the two editions, but looking at the eight games altogether and particularly looking at the crossovers. So take the two crossovers that everybody's already playing and try to, when you're adding the two additional crossovers, try to balance it out as much as possible. And then don't ask us what we think about who we're getting. Call us about 30 minutes before you make the announcement and tell us who we're getting. Wow. And because we knew if we got in, I mean, we're, we wanted to get the schedule out and we knew if we started all looking at it, it would, it would drag it out another month. And nobody would nobody would know the schedule because everybody would be jockeying for certain opponents and not wanting certain opponents and that kind of thing. So we said, we trust you, Mark. You look at it and you try to, you know, if, if someone has two really strong teams already from the other division, try to balance that out. And if somebody uh, has two really weak teams, try to balance that out. If somebody's split down the middle, try to balance that out. And I think they did a remarkable job. It's never going to be perfect. It's There's always going to be somebody not happy. But, you know, in our case, we had – uh, you know, a traditionally strong opponent uh, in LSU, and we had one that that you wouldn't categorize that in Ole Miss, and we get, I think we got one of each coming in on the additions from A uh, uh, and M in Arkansas, and I think if you, you know, I know I've I've heard some Georgia uh, some Florida fans comment that that Georgia picked up two teams that don't appear to be as strong, but they also had Auburn and Alabama already from the West before that, you know, that was built into the schedule. So I think when you look at the totality of what they did, I think they did a pretty good job. So was the first revision, as you mentioned, that was that was it. He, he put together the entire schedule, sent it out one time, and then no changes made. Yeah. Impressive. I got a call about 45 minutes before it went on. They had the TV show telling me who our opponents were going to be. And then the same when they gave us the dates. I got a phone call from Mark, and he said, here's who you're picking up. So... Um, which that's unusual. Typically we all see drafts, as I mentioned, but we were trying to speed the process along. And, and again, we trust that the league is going to be fair. And, and I, I, you know, I, I could sit there and argue anybody that, for the most part, anybody that got brought up, I could say, if you look at who they were already planning on playing from the other division, it makes sense who they picked. Yeah, that's really good organizational structure to have all the ADs be able to trust the person who you're supposed to, in theory, trust to do that. Uh, that's definitely a good process. How, Scott, were the contracts handled for the out-of-conference games that we lost this year? Are those payouts made to those schools? Are they deferred? What's what's that look like? You know, we um, for the most part, there's uh, there's language in our contracts that if the SEC makes an adjustment to our conference schedule, to our, to our football schedule that prohibits us from from having the game that there's uh there's uh 
it, you know, we're able to get out of the contract. Um, you know, in some of the cases, I think Eastern Washington, Big Sky Conference, they, they had canceled their season uh, after subsequent to us making this change, but they went ahead and canceled theirs. So some teams aren't even playing, so they really wouldn't have a claim. Uh, candidly, there's, you know, there's, there's, those things take a while to play out, but um, we we feel like we're in a pretty good position related to um, those games. And, and candidly, you know, we, we want to be good partners and, and uh, um you know, our hope is somewhere down the line we can reschedule those games in a future year and, and work with those schools because it's you know they're out of a nice payday coming to play the Gators. So speaking of rescheduling, it's been fascinating to watch teams cobble together schedules on the fly, seemingly, um, with college football having the tendency to schedule so far advance. And you know, you've been very uh, adept at scheduling some of these non-conference games way into the future do you think that's good for college football or is it better to do it closer to when things are happening i i would love for football scheduling to be like every other sport where you you do it on a much shorter timeline i would i mean i i think that'd be good for the sport you know i'd i'd love for us to to have relationships with other non leagues and, and other conferences where you know, in January we get announced. You know, kind of like uh, in basketball, we have the Big 12 SEC uh, uh, showdown or whatever, where we find out, you know, a few months before the season who we're playing on what date. I'd love for something like that to happen for college football. I think it'd be really good for the sport. I I don't see a lot of momentum behind that. I think um, it'd be great if through this process, the necessity that 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 all these uh, these short-term scheduling decisions are being made out of necessity. It'd be great if we saw that as a model going forward, in my opinion. But um, I don't know that that uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, appetite for that. But I think it'd be awesome if we had, like, in, you know, what the NFL does with their reveal show. If we had a reveal show in January, here's what the SEC schedule is going to be for the next year, and you had no idea who the opponents are or the opponents were based on, you know, how you finished the year before or something like that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I, I don't know if that's practical, Alan, based on, you know, the what you what you when you have conversation with colleagues, nobody else seemed very interested in that approach. Hmm, that's interesting because the this idea of and I'm sure you've seen it of having pods in the SEC where essentially you get rid of divisions, you have cross play in the SEC, you rotate a lot more, you don't play Alabama once every, you know, fourteen years or whatever it winds up being. Uh, but you have them much more frequently, coupled with playing more conference games, potentially playing fewer cupcakes, uh, keeping that a conference game. Do you know what you just said? Is there potential for greater change or when COVID is over, are we just going to fall most likely right back into what's been done with the scheduling? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm an advocate for, for playing more meaningful games. I'm an advocate for having more rotation in our sec schedule where we do get to see teams more often. Um, you know, before COVID, we there were some there were some preliminary conversations about what that might look like, but but nothing of any substance, or you know, really never got far down the road. And then and then March hit, and and you know, we haven't really gotten back to that conversation. But um, you know, I'd I'd love to see that. I I think uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of value in uh, you know we were going to Ole Miss for the we're going to Ole, we are going to Ole Miss, but really not going to be able to go in a traditional setting but it's the first time in 13 years, I believe. And, you know, that, that seems silly, <laughs> you know, and, and so you, 
you start to drill down on that and what that could look like if you had more rotation and, and how much better it would be for the fans and how much better it would be for the, for the athletes who get a chance to, to go to more campuses and, and, and get more variety. Um, I, you know, I'd love to see that. And I've, you know, I've got ideas I throw out to the league office and, and, uh, you know, maybe one day one of them will get some traction and we'll get to, we'll get to do something, but, um, you know, we'll keep pushing. I love it. I love Scott that you're a big proponent for that. It, it excites me because as a fan, I'm, I'm all on board the more meaningful games train. And also, as you just mentioned, playing schools more frequently, especially from the West, I just think it's, it's better for everyone. So, so keep on making your proposals. We all appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit about Florida state. There's been a lot of discussion amongst sec fans. How come the sec couldn't have done what the ACC was trying to do and, or did and keep that out-of-conference opponent, that marquee rival, on the schedule? Well, there was a, a practical point that um, those who, who, who were in favor of playing just SEC games made. Uh, there were two practical points they made. One is, um, you, you know, you, you keep this, you provide less complications for something that um, – Certainly, when this decision was made in August, it seems really complicating. And it is complicating to play a football game in a COVID environment. It's a lot more complicated than playing it in a non-COVID environment. And so you reduce complication by making sure you have standardized protocols for testing and, and game officials and, and all the different things that go into a game that when you play a non-conference game, it, it, it is a little bit more, I don't want to say complicated, but there's is more moving parts. And when you when you're playing just conference games, there's less moving parts. And so there was a feeling that we, you know, let's let's try to make this as simple as possible. Um, and and then uh, understanding that if we get to a situation, you're talking about scheduling where we had to reschedule games because of outbreaks, um, it's going to be easier uh, theoretically to reschedule them if you're if you're only dealing with teams in your same conference as opposed to to working out a conference. So that was those were the arguments, and you know the fact of the matter is there's four schools that have traditional in-state rivals out of conference, and there's ten that don't. And so they're you know just the the motivation to 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 keep those games, given all the other things that we're dealing with, wasn't there as a league. And so this decision was made, and you know I I would love to play the FSU game, and you know. Since Dan's been here, we've had a lot of success in that game, and and that's that's certainly not a game we want to give up on this year's schedule. But you know, part of being in a league is sometimes you have to sacrifice for the greater good. And there's an old saying in our in, in the SEC that a split vote is really a 14-0 decision. And so this is one of those that uh, it's a 14-0 decision, and we all have to live with it and 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 move forward. And and you know, we look forward to next year. Hopefully, we can play the Seminoles again. Yes, I mean, I think that's very reasonable and sensible. Uh, I definitely subscribe to the philosophy on if you're on a team, you disagree and commit. Just like you said, we might disagree, but you don't want to get yourself into situations like some other conferences had who are airing their dirty laundry in public. And, of course, it's deeply tragic that we will not get to add a victory against FSU this year, which we surely would have. We can just go ahead and add that to the record book, I think. Just this, the probability, you know, go ahead and add it on there to the official record, Scott, if you will. Um, but let me ask about another in-state opponent. Uh, lots of discussion over the years about Miami being added in as a 
annual or maybe semi-annual opponent? Do you have thoughts on proceeding forward with that? You're, you're breaking up, Alan. I'm sorry. Ask that question again. Sure. Um, do you have thoughts on adding in Miami as a annual or okay. maybe semi-annual opponent? Yeah, I you know we've got them in twenty four and twenty five. I um, I I like playing that game periodically. I, I don't know that we want to play it every year or, or even uh, any you know too regular because you know our goal is to play eleven Power Five opponents, and we got eight SEC plus FSU. That's nine, and um, you just start limiting what you can do with that with those other two games. So I'd love for Miami occasionally to be one of those other two games. I just don't know that I want to lock that in because I do, you know, it's like we we're having a conversation earlier about not about sec variety. If we, if the sec schedule model doesn't change and you add, you have FSU. So you have seven, seven sec opponents that are the same every year. You have FSU. That's the same every year. If you add Miami now, that's the same every year. That's nine of the same games every single year. I think that, that goes against what we were talking about earlier. I, I don't think that's what we want. I think we want more variety in who we're playing. But certainly Miami's a team, you know, that it's fun to play, another in-state school. And, and uh, you know, we we're playing a home-and-home home in 24 and 25, and I would expect we'd, we would continue to go down the road in future years and periodically do that as well. Yeah, maybe one year we'll get to the Pat Forty uh, Super Conference idea, which he's been proposing for years and years and years. That seems far away, but that would be like the NFL of college football. Uh, switching switching gears entirely here, let's talk about the players. And there's a variety of things that are affecting players in 2020. And uh, first, let's ask a, a social issue question. So each campus has been handling this differently. Florida had, you know, I know a player kind of protest before a scrimmage. What is the dialogue on campus like between the coaches and the players? And is that something that ADs like yourself kind of get in and set the framework for, or are the coaches able to handle that as they desire? Yeah, I think it's both. Uh, I, you know, um, <clears throat> my, my communication to our, to our coaches is we are here to support young people and we're fortunate to live in a country where we have a freedom of expression and, um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, um, uh, the, the UAA and the university of Florida, we are not a, we are not a political entity, but we're made up of people. Um, and people have, exp have opinions and, and whether they're political opinions or not, they have opinions and we are, we are not going to, um, limit the, the first amendment. So we are, but we are not going to, you know, the UAA is not going to take a stance. But we're not going, you know, we're going to we're going to make sure our young people understand that that uh, they have responsibility and and opportunity. And one of those opportunities is freedom of expression. So uh, I think where our coaches come in is they have a responsibility to engage with our athletes, our students um, to uh, make sure that that they are educated, understanding what their what their opportunities are what their freedoms are, um, you know, if they have an opinion they want to share publicly, they need to understand what comes with that. There's a responsibility that comes with that as well. So I just, I think it, it creates the opportunity to have a lot of communication and a lot of dialogue. And, um, you know, when we hear the word communication, I think we always think of talking. A big part of communication is listening. And so 
this is, you know, what's going on in our country with social justice, and particularly on college campuses, I think, is is um, opening up a lot of ears and letting people have dialogue they may not have had otherwise. And, you know, it was interesting watching some of these NFL games from the first week, and, and you know, everybody paid attention to the national anthem. Um, you have some players standing, some players kneeling of both races. You have, you know, uh, black players standing and black players kneeling and, and white players standing and white players kneeling. And I assume that there's been enough dialogue and communication on those teams where there is respect for one another, regardless of what decision they make. And so at the end of the day, within a team, that's what you want. You want enough dialogue and respect for one another that they 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 are comfortable with whatever statement or whether it's from the anthem or, or in a, you know, another way, whatever somebody feels or thinks that they, they are comfortable enough expressing that and trust and respect the other person enough to hear that. So um, that's a long way of, that's a long winded way of saying um, it, you know, we, the first amendment is alive and well on our campus and we have some young people who, who, will want to be involved and be active. And we have some that, that may not want to, and they're both going to have that right, but we're not gonna have anything on the uniforms. Uh, we may have some teams have, you know, some, some, you know, unity type statements on t-shirts or something that they want to wear. Uh, but you know, the, our job is to support our young people. And you know, a lot of young people are, are really engaged with this right now. And it's, it's something we've got to be mindful of and, and respectful of. In a team setting, you had mentioned just a few minutes ago that a split vote becomes a unanimous vote in the SEC. In a team setting, how does how does that happen moving forward? Because, like you mentioned, there'll be differing opinions. You know, at one point in time, it used to be, "Hey, this is what the coach and the culture says," and if you don't like it, you can freely express your opinion. You're able to do so, but here's the boundary line. Are similar? Is that kind of a similar thing to what's going on today? Like, how does how does that work? What's the line? Like you mentioned, tease that out for me. What's the expectation for an athlete at UF? Here's the line: we want you to express yourself. You can, but also here's what would be detrimental to maybe your team and university. Are those discussions occurring as well? Yeah, you know, I, I really think it comes down to the word respect. I think you have to respect your teammates and and uh, your coaches, and um, and then we have to respect the athletes, right? So there's got to be, there's got to be, a, there's, there's latitude in there. Hey, freedom, freedom of expression is both a wonderful thing and a really scary thing all at the same time. And, you know, I don't know if our founders exactly, I, I, they probably did because a lot of them obviously, um, you know, risked their life for us to even have a country, but there's uh, there's a, there's a, there's, there's, you got to have great communication and respect for freedom of expression to, to really work. And so the, the answer to your question is it really comes down to that individual team and, and the individuals on that specific team. So I have no doubt as, and we've seen this already in, in professional sports, there's just some teams that do things um, in, un, you know, in unison where they're all doing the same thing. And you have some that, that they're not that way. And, um, I think it depends on the individual locker room and the culture on that team. Uh, the expectation of our athletes is they're going to be respectful and they're going to, um, you know, have a why behind whatever they do that it can be personal, but they, they need to understand the why for whatever they do. Um, but they're going to have support to, you know, to, to, 
share the freedoms that all Americans have. All right. Another issue that's been, I think, I don't know if the word controversial is the right word, but a lot of discussion, both in public and private, I'm sure, about um, name image likeness. Are you expecting that to get ratified? I don't know. And I'm wondering in what time frame you expect that to get ratified if you do. You know, it's a, that's a great question, Alan. Um, you're, uh, by the way, I, I'm glad we've gotten to the lighter part of the program here. Where we can <laughs> we can talk about some some laid back kind of things. Sure. Um, obviously, in the state of Florida, you know, this coming July, it's going to be the law. So, what happens on an NCAA level, or what happens on the on the federal level, um, is it, it really is is immaterial. For the University of Florida, because come next July, the state of Florida has said that the student athletes have the right to engage in their name, image, and likeness rights. So uh, we are preparing to, to you know, go back to support our student athletes. Um, they will, you know, we are the university will not be setting up athletes for sponsorships or, or things like that. But we're going to educate them. We're going to make sure they understand, um, you know, what it, what it would look like. Um, you know, we're going to, um, you know, have some resources for them that they can utilize if they choose to, to do these kind of things, but they're going to have to take the responsibility. A lot of that responsibility will really fall on the shoulder of the student athletes or whoever's helping them. So, um, you know, the, the, the broader question is, are we going to have 50 states with 50 laws or is there going to be some kind of uniformity? And, and, uh, there was a federal hearing today. Uh, I believe it was the Education Committee. Uh, the Commerce Committee in the Senate has had hearings. Um, there's, it looked at one point like we were, they were going to try to get a, a federal bill done before the election. Now it sounds like it might be after the election, if at all. So there, there's a lot to be played out there. But this is, uh, this is going to be a little bit different, and, and student-athletes are going to have the ability to to, to have some freedoms they've, they've not had before. And, and uh, I think there's a way that can happen without it uh, drastically changing what college athletics looks like. I really do. Um, but it's, it's going to be different, and, and we're going to have to, just like everything else the past we've experienced the past few months, we're going to have to have the ability to adapt. Scott, is there a pay-for-play idea out there that you like? Um. So when you say that, I think what you're really asking is there a is there a free market? Because because I would argue that there is a current pay for play model. It's involved, but it's 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 not um, capitalistic. It's almost socialistic, right? Because everybody gets the same thing. So um, you know, Senator Lamar Alexander used a term a, a really high figure. I thought in the in the education Senate Education Committee today, where he said the University of Tennessee spends about $110,000 a year on every scholarship athlete. I, I think that's high. I think the number at UF would be somewhere between sixty-five and $70,000. Um, and so that's that's real money. That's not make-believe money. So like the UAA writes a, uh, an eight-figure check to campus every year for the tuition of all of our student athletes. And the food they receive is real money and the, and the cash stipend they receive as part of cost of attendance is real money. So, but everybody who's on a full scholarship gets the same. So that's not, so when, when, so I don't, I don't 
you know, so then you're arguing about, well, there need, if, if someone talk, I think when the people say pay for play, they're talking, they, they think there should be more money there. Well, that's, that's another conversation. Um, you know, currently the, the, the courts have ruled that, that the caps are appropriate. Um, because I don't think we, I don't think student athletes that we want to professionalize them because, um, I, I, I think you get into a lot of, of, um, legalities there. If you're going to do that, you need to set up outside LLCs that license with the university for their, uh, for their marks and logos and maybe for use of facilities, but there's no pretense that it's tied to education. But if you're going to tie it to education, I don't know how you professionalize it. And mm -hmm. so, um, and, and, and I'm sure there's a way and there's, a, there's, a, I've, I've never heard a way that, that made sense beyond just continuing to try to find ways to further support our athletes um, as we've done with, you know, cost of attendance, stipends, and that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's a complicated deal. I think the the pay-for-play um, line of thinking really minimizes a lot of the benefit that athletes currently receive and, and, and the financial value of them. Um, but also know that uh, there are some athletes who there's no question Tim Tebow had a tremendous amount of value at the University of Florida and did not receive um, financially what he brought to the table. But for every Tim Tebow, I'd say there's probably hundreds of young people that, who come on this campus who who receive more than what they bring to the table from a from a uh, commercial standpoint. Um, and so it's, it's it's a socialist system. There's no question. And that's not very American, you know. Even though college athletics is incredibly American, that that goes goes against our our economic uh, principles as a country. But there's just there's college athletics is so unique. You know, America is the only country that has combined higher education with high level athletics, and it's the reason you see so many international students uh, competing in America because no other country has done that. And you could, you know, maybe maybe we shouldn't have done it, but you know, 120 years ago, somebody decided it was a good idea, and it became really popular, and and to the point where we're, you know, there's a lot of financial ramifications now to it. So, I I don't have a great answer. Um, I think college athletics is really special. Uh, I do think that the name, image, and likeness, I can I can perceive how that would that would uh, allow for some flexibility for young people for the next Tim Tebow to have some some commercial uh, uh, opportunities that would help them financially without, um, you know, disconnecting athletics on a college campus from, from the educational mission. But, um, I, you know, to make it a – to me, if, the, if there was true value, the school brings a lot of value. The platform brings a lot of value. And the case in point is, um, you know, look at the spring sport leagues that have tried to get started, going back to USFL and the XFL and the Alliance these are really good football players. It's, it's, the, it's some of the best. It's the best from college football who didn't make the NFL. It's really it's like an all-star team in a lot of ways of, of former college players, and they don't they don't have near the attention as college football because there's something about putting on that uniform that represents the university that makes this so popular. Now the players are a huge part of that, but I there's 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 got to be a balance there to um, the, the platform that the university provides. 
Uh, Scott, that was to me uh, a great answer. Uh, I could spend an hour just walking through some of the things you said. There's so many foundational meta components to what you're saying, but at the core, uh, you are highlighting the current the current situation in college football, which is in fact a socialist environment, and now it's taking on some Marxist tones where the players get exploited by the university. And on the other side, you have a free market system, which of course will lead to uh, economic inequality, but it actually leads, in my opinion, to higher wealth and wages for everyone participating. But Tim Tebow would make a whole lot more uh, than other guys on that team that would have been very good. And so it's really fascinating. It's sort of a juxtaposition of a lot of things that are happening in society. And I think you articulated very well the idea that well, these athletes should all get more because they make more again, in my opinion, is sadly a very Marxist idea that people that attend universities are used by them or exploited by them. And we could have all sorts of conversations, but uh, I think the benefits you listed, the things you said, the directions in which you go, uh, you really are left with either making it like a European model, an academy model, which is totally professional, or as you mentioned, finding ways to to keep it educational. One of those ways that one of our listeners put up to us, which was interesting, and this is a university question, but I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Has there been an idea of having maybe a trade school attached for some of these college football players to go through? A lot of them will wind up getting degrees that are not tremendously useful, but what if they were able instead to become an electrician or something like that while playing college football? Because currently there's no real way for them to achieve something like that. Is that something that would maybe suit the educational realm as well as the play realm, or is that uh, just not a possibility? You know, I, I, I think there's a lot of value to a University of Florida degree. And, and you know, our athletes, when they come, they, they want to, you know, compete at a high level, and many of them have pro sports aspirations. And even if they think they're only going to be here a year or two or three, they still like that idea of uh, being able to, one day come back and get a degree from the University of Florida. You know, we announced this week that we're a top six public university. That degree has value. And so I, is there, maybe there's a way to come up with a curriculum that combines uh, what a professional athlete would need once they start their professional career, you know, with business school courses and, and uh, PR communication courses and sports medicine um, health type courses. And you, you create a curriculum where you get a, a master's in that, but it's still a University of Florida degree, and it's it's got foundations in you know the education of the University of Florida. I, there, there's some value there, but you know here's the thing that that no matter for all of our young people who have aspirations of competing beyond uh, their time here at UF, there's going to come a day where they stop playing sports, and. Uh, for the vast majority of those, even those who have some type of pro career, for the vast majority, the degree that they get from Florida is going to earn them more money in their career than the professional sports opportunity did. There, there are a few exceptions to that, obviously, but for the most part, they're going, that degree is going to mean something. And so that's why having uh, athletics tied to higher education makes sense. And it, it's why, uh, you know, do whatever we do um, – with them from an education standpoint, it's important that they, that they, that degree still has value, but are there ways we could tailor something and, and, and make it more meaningful for those who do have long-term pro careers? Absolutely. Well, you, you said you didn't have a good answer to that question 
uh, two questions ago. I wanted to say I really appreciated the answer that you did give. I thought it was really thoughtful and and wise. Um, just transition here to fans this season. Uh, are you expecting at some point to have fans in the swamp? We are going to have fans. We're going to have we're going to start with twenty percent, which is about seventeen thousand, and I have no expectations for that changing, but we will certainly be prepared if conditions um, in the community surrounding the virus, treatments, that kind of thing, allow um, if we could put more fans in there. But but at this point, that's not an expectation. Uh, once upon a time, Scott, I was a graduate assistant in the ticket office at the UAA. I'm curious, how how are those tickets being doled out? Is it a lottery system based upon contribution level? How does it work for the students? What does that look like? Yeah, so for the uh, the um, season ticket holders, it is done based on priority points. And, um, you know, we're going down, down the list. So it's the same system we use to distribute Florida-Georgia tickets or bowl game tickets or SEC championship game tickets. Um, we'll use that same system. Um, my sense is we'll get pretty far down the list because I think we'll have a lot of people who uh, won't come to as many games or may just decide they're 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 just going to wait till we're on the other side of COVID. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that you know we'll have a lot of, we'll have enough demand there to 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 move the seventeen thousand. Um, we are going to have a couple thousand for our students, and that will be done on a lottery. And I think our our team has put together a really good I say our team our ticket office staff. The marketing team have put together a really good plan. Um, if uh, if you're a freshman, you get entered. You're entered into the lottery. Uh, you have one shot at the lottery, and if you're a sophomore, you get two, and if you're a junior, you get three, and if you're a senior, you get four. And then for every year you've been a student season ticket holder in the past, you get an extra shot at it, and um, you can enter in the lottery every week, but you can only win one time. And when you win, you get two tickets. And the idea is that you and a friend who's in your social setting, um, you know, a roommate or somebody that's already, you're already around enough to where um, you're, you know, you're going to be COVID proof from um, you and, and you can bring a friend to the game. So, um, but you can only win once. So once you win the, if you win the first game, uh, you're not eligible for any of the others. So doing it that way, we get 10,000 students over the course of the season who will have a chance to come to a game at the Swamp, which is not, you know, it's not ideal, but I, I think our staff has done a good job making the best of that situation. That sounds like a really interesting system. I was wondering what the what was going to come of students being in the stands and whether that was going to happen. Um, so speaking of students and the future of college football, I, this might be just a too broad of a topic here, but do you have thoughts on engaging students in sports more, especially football as uh, you know, with declining attendance and things like that? Are you, are you excited about any of those pathways forward to get our current students connected to our football program? Yeah. You know, I, and I know that it's not uh, quote unquote fixed and it's, it's not like it was, you know, when, when we were in school or you guys were in school, but, I, I actually think we've made some progress there in the last couple of years. And um, it's, you know, it's I, I, this day and age, um, students aren't going to show up two hours before the game and pack the student section and wait for two hours for kickoff. They're just not, you know. But if you look at our, our student tickets last year, our student attendance last year, 
it's actually pretty good compared to what it had been in previous years. And I attribute that to some of the things that our staff has done from a technology standpoint, you know, Wi-Fi in the stadium, uh, the app, the uh, some of the things that we're able to do because of the app. Um, but I, I think another part of it is is winning. You know, we 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 don't like to talk about it, but really from 2010 until 2017, uh, there were a couple generations of students that that didn't have the same experience you guys did at the University of Florida with your football program. And um, it takes time to build that back up. And so I, I'm, I'm hopeful. And I, again, I think we saw signs of it last year. You know, we played Tennessee at a noon game in September, and the student section was, was, was my recollection. I actually walked through the student section that game. It was pretty packed. And the uh, Auburn game was awesome. The FSU game was awesome, even though it was a holiday weekend. So you're starting – and then even, even games that you wouldn't normally have big crowds. We had like – I think it was our, our – our, uh, one of our biggest crowds the last few years was for the Vandy game last year. We had 85,000, which, uh, again, I know that's not capacity, but for a noon game uh, against a team that doesn't uh, bring a lot of fans, I, I thought our students did pretty well. So I'm hopeful that, that uh, what we're going through this year doesn't stop that momentum and that we can continue to engage our fans. I think you know Dan Mullen does a great job of engaging student body. Um, it's really incumbent upon upon us in this day and age when um uh you know football programs do kind of seem cut off people talk about football teams in a bubble uh like you can't do it on college campuses and, and theoretically uh, technically you can't but um in the in years past there's been a lot of criticism that football teams were in their own bubble and so uh i think anything we can do to punch through that and connect with students i think is going to be helpful um hey one of the reasons i think it's really important that we we schedule a better quality opponents going forward is to to make sure that not just students but all fans are have games they want to get to and the better the quality of opponent and the better our team plays and the more we continue to do things in the stadium i mentioned technology and new video boards and new restrooms and those kind of things i think once we get back on the other side of covid that we're going to be able to continue to create some momentum that we we started seeing last year Preach it right there. You could, you could, you could give me a schedule where we're playing a bunch of good teams and put me in the middle of one of the rec fields at UF, and I'll be there, even over fancy enhancements, because I think that is really what, at the end of the day, you know, helps to bring the experience. Speaking of enhancements, uh, one I know we've talked about the sound system at UF. I know, thankfully, is going to be improved in the swamp. Uh, a question we get a lot is, "Hey, this the student side, the speakers, no one can hear them." Uh, this is, I'm guessing, planned to be addressed, but we'll save that for later. What I want to know this year is how do you plan on or how do we plan on using the sound system in-game? Will there be piped-in crowd noise on defense, cheers for touchdowns? What's that going to look like in addition to the fans that will be there? My, my sense is we're going to uh, supplement the, the crowd that is there. I, I have, uh, I'm optimistic. The, the acoustics in the swamp have always been really good because of the way the stadium is built. I'm optimistic that 17,000 can make pretty good crowd noise, but we are going to be prepared to, to supplement that. The, there's an SEC rule that uh, once the center puts his hand on the ball, you can't pipe in anything, whether it's music or anything, any sound effects. And that's going to remain in place this year. So um, when the other team is at the line of scrimmage and their center has their hand on the ball, the you know, the, the only noise that's going to be made in the swamp is going to have to come from those 17,000. So they're going to, they need to, 
be ready to yell loud loudly. But um, I, you know, I, uh, there's you know, watching some games on TV as you guys have, I'm sure you can tell when there's a big play being made that the they're piping in a little extra noise. I, I could see us augmenting what we have here, and our, our, our again, our team have really has a really good plan. They've actually, you'll, you guys will appreciate this. They've actually gotten some audio files from the uh, from EA Sports when they used to do the college football game, and they would go to the college campuses and actually record those. The the they came to the swamp and they recorded our fans here. We've gotten some of those audio to use in the video game. We've gotten some of those audio files that we're going to be able to to use uh, with chants or whatever to to kind of uh, normalize the situation uh, in a COVID game. Very cool. Yeah, I like it. I think that's that's good. And that reminds me of my NCAA football days back when there was uh, such a game to be played. All right, we have to ask you this question. We've gotten asked by countless people to ask you this question. The Gator Bait cheer itself. Thoughts on that? Plans in the future? Is there a replacement cheer coming? Um, well, I, you know, I, we're certainly respectful of the decision the university made. And... Um, you know, really, the the only um, oh, what's the right word? The the only thing that that has happened in the stadium that would trigger that cheer is the is the the four or five bars of music uh, that the band would play. So that won't be played. But um, so really, that's that's going to be the that's the only real impact from a UAA standpoint um, where the the band and the, that chant goes. So um, don't have. Uh, don't have plans right now to kind of engineer a new cheer. I, I think those things kind of are better when they occur organically, and and we'll you know we're always looking for ways to to add to the to the experience in the swamp. Uh, you know, great example of that. And again, this was organic. Was the Tom Petty song? You know, it wasn't something that mm. we we plotted out to do. It was, hey, you know, this Gainesville legend's passed away. Let's find a cool way to to honor him, and it you know it turned out to be something that people wanted to us to keep doing and it's become part of the the fabric of of going to a game in the swamp so to me i'd I'd love to continue to find ways to do that but i don't think we're going to just artificially say here's the the replacement champ for gator bait because that doesn't you know i i don't i'm i I think i don't know that those work i don't know that they have buy-in we need something that uh uh, our cheerleaders and our band and, and our spirit squads and our fans all kind of come to collectively and 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 want to make sure that is worthy of something that should be happening for the Gators. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, in basketball, there used to be the a call me out was played whenever like a huge momentum swing had occurred. And now they always play it at the under eight minute timeout and it's not organic. So I'll pass, I'll pass that feedback along to the band director, but uh, I totally agree. Organic's the way they go. All right, here comes a softball. I'm just going to lob you one in here. We're going to talk about uniforms just for a second because we get these questions a lot. My favorite uniform combination of all is the blue top and orange bottoms. And amazingly on Twitter, we got a bunch of requests to ask about when can we wear the blue top and orange bottoms? I know you have no say in this. And also are the black uniforms going to happen? Do you we have any no. information on uniform watch? <laughs> 2020? Controversial we have no black uniforms ordered. I can tell you that. So wow. I, breaking uh, news. All right. Yeah. I don't know if that's. I don't think we've ever had those ordered. Um, you know, I, I I have. I am indifferent to the to the uh, blue top orange pants. Although the only story I've heard, and uh, Jeremy Foley has told me this story, and he he laughs about it. I guess the Gators 
wore that combination against in the in the Sugar Bowl was that against Louisville? Yes. Help me out. Yeah, I think so. And I think you're we, right there. We didn't play well that game, and and Jeremy says that one of the sports columnists in the state after the game wrote, "Dress like Illinois." play like Illinois. So that every time somebody sends me on Twitter or something that we should wear that, that, that uniform combination, I just think that's a funny line. I'm, that's that's great. Illinois, but I, I just, that, that rings in my head, dress like Illinois, play like Illinois. So uh, the fact of the matter is we have a lot of sports teams that, that do wear that some combination similar to that. So I, that you might see that someday. I, I, uh, I'll mention that to Jeff McGrew, our equipment Yes, I know the the black uniforms. That was probably the most controversial topic we introduced here. A lot of division amongst Gator fans who are interested in that thing, that sort of thing. Uh, just briefly on facilities, I, um, any updates you can give on the football complex being moved along? Um, anything in that realm? Yeah, we uh, we're finishing. Obviously, the demolition. If you've driven by, the demolition of McKeithen is taking mm-hmm. place, and and uh, a lot of utility. Uh, site work is being done right now. Um, we there there may be some some complications related to the pandemic that that may put us off our timetable by uh, you know a month or so. But uh, still really excited about that project. It, it's one that's a priority, and um, you know it. I, this is a, a time when you know we are kind of off our game from what we would normally be touting and talking a lot about. You know it just you know, because of COVID and everything. I think in normal times, we would have all kind of stuff going out about that facility and, and, and have a lot more public facing conversation about it. But, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll get back there soon, but uh, um, st- still really excited about that. I think it's going to be a game changer. It's going to, it's going to, it's not going to be a 10 or 15 year solution. It's going to be a, a several generation solution for, uh, from a facility standpoint for our football program. And I think when people see it, the finished product, they're going to be blown away by it. All right, we've got three big questions remaining. We saved the biggest ones, maybe the most impactful football ones, and then one wild card for you for the end. Uh, recruiting. Do you have, as an AD, a recruiting goal or benchmark or budget spent on recruiting? We get this question more than any other one. Look how much money Georgia's spending on recruiting. Is there a goal you have as an AD? Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I want to give our coaches what they need to to go win championships, and so it's not apples to apples because we're we're handling our cost sources differently. The cost of the pilots, the cost of the fuel, the cost of the uh, the upkeep, everything that they're doing from a chartering standpoint goes to the football recruiting budget. Well, at UAA, we have an entire aviation department. The co- the pilot salaries are within that department budget. The the plane maintenance is in that aviation department budget the only thing that football gets charged for is fuel so i just use that as an example to be real careful that it's not uh, every dollar is not really being treated the same when you look at those budgets and really that's not just recruiting budgets that's anytime you look at comparison between different schools budgets some some schools uh you know we we may put something as a that that you would consider a football or basketball spent into a a game management or operations budget and another school may put that into uh, a football budget so it just so it makes you look like you're spending more on a sport when really you're spending the same dollar you're just categorizing it differently does that make sense 
It does. It does indeed make sense. And is there a specific target when you know you and Dan sit down and say, "I need you to be at this level"? I'm guessing there isn't, right? You're entrusting the coach to recruit who he wants to recruit, who he needs to recruit. There's not a mandate that says be in the top five or we're not there. Yeah, I look at wins at the end of the year. That's what I look at. And if we're not winning games and competing for championships in in whatever sport it is, that to me that's. Um, that's what we hold coaches accountable for. So I don't – I think an AD who tells a coach who to hire as an assistant or who to recruit, you're setting that coach up for failure because at the end of the day, the, the, the coach is leading that program and they've got to have the ability to, to manage those things the right way. And um, so I, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get caught up in recruiting rankings. I don't, I've seen too many examples of, of the – and I understand that, that you know uh, – there's 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 some validity and there's a there's a lot of examples of that uh the teams that recruit well or in, that show up well in recruiting rankings do well um uh in the game uh, in seasons and championships but there's a lot of examples where it's the other way and so i i just think i, I i'm going to hold our coaches accountable for running their programs the right way doing so with integrity winning games and competing for championships yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We talk a lot on this podcast about needing to be in a certain tier of recruiting to be able to win. But I think as an AD, like you mentioned, your job is to hire the coach and then allow that coach to run the program the way they want to and make evaluations from there. So when it comes to evaluating coaches, because that obviously is a large part of your job, what is the the performance review process like? Is it a benchmark-based conversation? Is this what most people would experience in their own life with their own performance reviews? What does that look like? You know, um, it, I, I would love to say I have this really data-driven approach. Um, the, these coaching jobs are, are really leadership jobs, and there's... Um, <clears throat> There, there's so many uh, variations and differences from one sport to the other that, um, you know, I, I think it's really important as athletic director that you're paying attention to what's going on in a program, and that's all parts of their f- program. It's what kind of kids you're bringing in, um, what the talent level looks like, how they're being prepared and developed, uh, how they're, uh, you know, what the, what the structure and the culture of the program is within it um are they doing things the right way are they are they representing your school the right way and then are you winning games and and having the kind of success that a place like florida would expect to have so um you know it you sit down you have you know hopefully you're communicating on an enough on an ongoing basis that it's not a one-time sit down at the end of the year have an evaluation kind of thing that uh, there's there's enough constant communication there where there, where there's there's no surprises about what is being expected and 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 how things are going. Um, you know, sometimes you have to sit down and have the really hard conversation because you have you you know you things have accumulated and they're not where you want them to be. But fortunately, you know, in Florida we've we've got a you know a lot of head coaches who've done really well for a long time and and uh, it's it you're not in that position where you're you're uh, you're having to have a lot of those kind of conversations and the expectations for football get thrown around a lot uh just at a very thirty thousand foot view is it something where florida needs to be in a playoff every four years or so is there some loose kind of thought this is on mission you know game results so to speak uh 
you know, I, I think we ought to be, I think we ought to be in a position to, to compete for championships and it starts with winning the East. And if you do that, you're going to have a chance to play from the SEC championship game. And if you win that, you have a chance to play in the CFP. So, um, there's so many things that, that, uh, that can happen that derail you once you get to a certain level because everybody's good, right? Once you get to Atlanta, you're playing a really good team. And, um, you know, you, a, a bad break, a bad bounce, a bad call could, could derail a team from winning a championship. I think what's really important is you put yourself in position consistently enough to where those bad bounces, those bad calls go your way. And, you know, the perfect example of that is Kevin O'Sullivan and the baseball team. You know, he, he'd been to Omaha several times leading up to 2017, and he would tell you that was his, not one of his more talented Omaha teams, but that was the year they got some breaks and they had some bounces go their way, and they came back holding up a trophy because he had put himself and his program in position to compete for championships consistently enough that that he was able to, to bring home the big title. So – where football is concerned, I would say the same thing. I think Dan has Dan talks about that. We got to win the East, and if we do that, a lot of possibilities open up. Yeah, that's so true. You definitely have to be competitive enough to be able to win, and those there's ways you can evaluate that without always having to have an exact winning target. All right, one basketball related question, and this really has to do with with being an athletic director in and of itself. Uh, Billy Donovan leaves Oklahoma City. I'm sure as an AD there's always links that, oh, the AD is going to hear about this or you get emailed from these people or these things happen. And of course you have a current coach rather than just addressing what would happen. What is it like as an athletic director when you have a legend from your school that now becomes available and you have people at your school that love said legend? Uh, how do you, how do you walk a line like that? What is, what is sort of that like? Does your inbox blow up or, you know, what, just, what is that? Take us through that. Yeah. I, it's funny. I was at home the other night when the news about Billy leaving the, the thunder broke. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I, I was, you know, having dinner or on a phone call or somebody. And, uh, you know, afterwards I, I picked up my iPad and looked on social media and, and typically I might have one or two mentions or, you know, at an hour or something. I had like, I had put it down for 20 minutes. I had like over 80 mentions. I was like, Oh my gosh, what's happened? You know, I had no idea and soon found out uh, that, uh, you know, Billy has a lot of fans as I'm not surprised. I'm one of them. I love Billy Donovan, but uh, you know, it's a really easy answer right now. I love Mike White. I think Mike White's going to be the head coach of the Florida Gators for a long, long time. And also think Billy Donovan is going to end up coaching the NBA again and, and continue to have a lot of success there. So um, I think that's, that's one of the, uh, it's one of the things about being at Florida that I've seen following a guy like Jeremy and, Dan has seen from following guys like Coach Burrier and, and uh, Coach Meyer is, you know, you come here, you're going to be compared to somebody really good and, uh, and, and somebody that was probably beloved. And you just got to be comfortable with that, being who you are. And, um, you know, at, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to go back in time and recreate history. And, and we got a bunch of guys here right now trying to create new history. Okay. Last question, a little bit more of a personal thing. Uh, so you're a very public figure in our community and nationally. Uh, how do you stay grounded when you have, you know, like you said, when something happens, you get all these mentions or very, you know, public persona. What is that like for you to stay sane in that environment? Um, 
Oh, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Um, you know, uh, I had uh, uh, someone I respect a long time ago uh, tell me that you need to take what you do seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. And, and uh, um, there's a great Greg Popovich story that ties into that. I, I read where he, he was asked one time what kind of person he likes to bring in, into his organization. And he basically summed it up by saying, I want someone who's gotten over themselves. So, um, you know, this, <clears throat> I have a, I'm, I am in a position that is high profile, but, but that doesn't necessarily make me high profile. It doesn't make me anything special. I've, I've got a responsibility to, um, you know, try to do everything I can to support our, our student athletes and our coaches. And uh, there are thousands upon thousands of other people who could do this job just as well or better. And I'm just blessed and fortunate that, that I get a chance to try to do it. So, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I, you know, I, I really try not to take myself too seriously. I, I do have the mindset I'm the least important person in this organization. That uh, our, our athletes, our coaches, our staff that that support them, those are the people that make this place so special. And certainly, our fans are a big part of that as well. So, you know, my job is to is to support them and and not mess it up and and make sure that they have every opportunity to to continue to help the Gators. Well, Scott, we here at the Gator Nation of Football Podcast think that you are very special indeed. Uh, we appreciate all the time that you spent with us. I think this is going to be incredible, uh, not only for our listeners, but for those that come in just to check out what you're going to say. Uh, what what a great time for sort of a meta look at what it's like to be an athletic director. And uh, again, you know, we're just thankful uh, for your support and just for, for your time and for your graciousness and we appreciate your humility, but we have no problem praising you and saying that, you know, we're really happy that you're Florida's athletic director. And of course, uh, you know, our friends as well. Thank you again. Just a great conversation today. Yeah, man. Enjoyed it. Uh, Alan, James, you guys keep up the great work. Uh, I, I enjoy listening to what you guys do. And uh, like all Gator fans out there, uh, your off-season stuff is really solid, but I can't wait to start hearing your, your in-season pods as I go on my runs or my exercises I always get them in so uh, keep up the great work and and uh, keep our fingers crossed that we'll get to kick it off here September 26th all right thanks so much Scott hey man thanks Scott all right guys y'all take care wow that was really incredible I so appreciate his candor and answering a lot of tough stuff we threw a lot of tough stuff at him and actually loved how he navigated all of those really kind of thorny issues and gave some really thoughtful answers. And gosh, I think my esteem for him grew during that interview. That was really cool. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't feel just great having Scott Strickland as your athletic director, I don't know what else I could say. And Alan and I are not the types to just gush over everyone. As you know, our podcast is a critical analysis based pod, uh, but it, it's hard not to really just respect you know, what someone like that does, the position they have. And, and hopefully you see the difficulty in making any decision. And a lot of you, of course, have jobs where you have to make very difficult decisions all the time. It's no different being an AD. Uh, you don't have perfect information. But uh, again, just really thankful for Scott coming on and being so candid with you, the listeners. And the reason he's doing it is obviously not for Alan and I. It's uh, to get a chance to kind of talk to, to you directly, right? Gator Nation out there. So hopefully you all enjoyed that as much as we did. 
and there's no way to transition to this next yeah. sponsor. So I'm just going to transition right to it. That's it's, great. it's our favorite time of the week here. Uh, elementary school, middle school kids, turn off your your podcast app for 60 seconds and then we'll come back. Not that this isn't anything other than G-rated, but Manscaped is back. And of course, a podcast sponsor this season of the Gator Nation football podcast. When you are looking for the best in men's below-the-waist grooming, Manscaped, that's your choice, Alan. That's what you want. It offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. That's my favorite line. They obsess over their technological developments, and they provide you the best tools for your own grooming experience. Manscaped redesigned their electric trimmer. It is called the Lawnmower. It is now the Lawnmower 3.0. And uh, they sent us multiple of these, and I can tell you, it's it's you just the thing is great. It's like a fancy clipper that you would use on your head. It's no different. It's the exact same thing. They're just branding it, right? They're wizards of marketing. If you listen to other podcasts, you hear all about Manscaped. Uh, long-lasting chargeable battery and it's waterproof so you can take it anywhere you want and because you listen to this podcast if you are so inclined you can get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code gogators20 at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off and free shipping manscaped.com use the code gogators20 all right there's a couple interesting games coming up this week a few top 25 teams let's start with the number 19th ranked Louisiana Lafayette Ragin Cajuns favored by 16 and a half at Georgia State. This feels to me like a comeback to earth game. The yes. whole country knows about you now. And here you are playing an away game at Georgia State, a conference opponent. 16 and a half is not 30 and a half. It means Georgia State's competitive. And because of that, I am, in fact, going to pick Georgia State, knowing not a single thing about them to be within that 16 and a half. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm going to go with you there. My exact same thinking, not knowing anything about Georgia State uh, and their value as a team this year. Uh, that number's just high enough that feels like they're going to you know, potentially be able to keep it close. Although if Louisiana blows them out, that wouldn't be surprising either. Okay. Boston College, new coach, Jeff Hathley, the former defensive coordinator at Ohio State. At Duke, Duke is favored by four and a half. I think Duke is the opposite of Louisiana. They lost, but they're feeling really good about themselves. They're now going to take on a first-year coach. So far, it has not been great for the limited debuts of first-year coaches during COVID. They were just a lot of things to overcome. Duke, meanwhile, an established, consistent program now under Cutcliffe. I'm going to go Duke. I'll join you with Duke um, with some good reasoning. Yeah, I don't know what to make of Jeff Hathley at Boston College. I thought it was an interesting hire. I'm excited to see what they do. But, I mean, not knowing. Uh, if you are a, a gambler, I would recommend staying far away from that game. Okay, number 23, App State, the powerhouse of the Sun Belt at Marshall are you taking App State here? I am not, actually. So well, I think hello. App State is going to continue its regression. Mm-hmm. Coach Satterfield no longer there. Mm-hmm. I expect this to be like a UCF slow sort of, you know, they promote an internal candidate. He's going to hold on to the ship for a while. Meanwhile, Marshall under Doc Holliday now in his 10th year there. Marshall's consistent. They're solid. They're a game opponent. I'm going to go ahead and take, again, the more established program in a COVID year. No way. Give me the Mountaineers. That number's nice. I'll take that. Okay, number 14, the UCF Golden Knights 
at the aforementioned Georgia Tech Rambling Wreck. UCF favored by seven. I like this matchup for Georgia Tech, and it also goes into my theme of the day. Uh, UCF, backsliding. It's slow. It's going to keep happening. I expect it to continue. Georgia Tech rising. I'm not going to get too high on the Florida State win, but that is a program on the rise and a coach I believe in. I'm going to say that Georgia Tech stays within seven of UCF. I think Collins is a fantastic DC. He's going to have a good game plan for what UCF wants to do, and he's not going to have inferior talent. So his coaching acumen should help him here. Man, this is really, really interesting. I, I love that Georgia Tech might be a player in the ACC. It makes it ACC you know, that much more intriguing. Not that I expect them to do much this year, but moving forward, a good Georgia Tech program is great. So... On that note, I will join you with Georgia Tech. Again, I I would not be surprised if UCF wins this game at all. But having to lay seven points to go with UCF is not really intriguing to me. All right. Definitely the game of the weekend. Number 17, Miami at number 18, Louisville. Louisville favored by two and a half. So two ascending coaches, if you will. Louisville with Satterfield on the way up. People think maybe Miami's on the way maybe. up with Manny that's Diaz, something. but that's more hope than what I think Satterfield's shown at Louisville. Louisville being ranked right now is merely a product of of really what's going on with COVID. But let us not forget, Alan, that they beat Mississippi State last year in the bowl game. And I put no faith in bowl games, but they had a nice finish to the end of that year. They were they competitive in a lot of the games, and you just hit it. Thank you very much, Alan. They got better every single game. And that is my number one litmus test for new coaches, especially in year one. Did you get better every game? They certainly did. And because of that, I don't. I cannot say the same thing for Miami. Last year, they were all over the place. With that being said, I'm going to take uh, Louisville. Me too. Uh, I don't have enough faith in Miami as a program right now in their consistency and their talent level. I think D.R. King is a really interesting player at quarterback for them, but not enough for me to what I saw from Louisville last year. Now, again, I Louisville could, I don't know, maybe not take a step back, but maybe not ascend at the rate that some of their fans are hoping they might. But I still think that they're going to be a really competitive team week in and week out, and that might be enough to beat Miami. Uh, I'm, I love the beginning of the season like this. There's so many question marks, so many things that get answered like right away. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to seeing this game and, uh, it's weird that I'm looking forward to seeing a ACC game, but you know, so star for college football, this game is really intriguing. I mean, I think both teams are intriguing Miami, whatever you think about them, you do want to know what they're going to do. You know, and the slate is, is subpar obviously, but last weekend, Alan, it felt so good. I know you came over for a couple of games, both Saturday and Sunday, NFL, college football on the three screens in my house. You know, Glorious. people watching, us enjoying the day. It felt like fall should feel. It felt like the right time of season. Uh, it felt amazing, even though the games were subpar. And, and, and if you wanted to know what a world felt like without the SEC, it misses a lot of go, star yeah. power. Yeah. If you're ever really wondering like how powerful the SEC is in the football world, even if you add in the Big Ten, which is a lot of prestige, and that does up the value, You the marquee matchups... Well, it felt just, like that Thanksgiving weekend that the SEC takes off. Correct. Are just finale. not quite the same. And then you lose again. Even in the Pac-12, you lose like a USC. Some of those historical prestige programs not being there affect you uh, this weekend specifically that way. Uh, but there are some matchups to enjoy. Just having college football on in the background is enjoyable in and of itself. 
and we certainly hope you will enjoy the games. I know that we will. Good news for all of you that enjoy this podcast. We will now be back each and every Monday for the rest of the season starting next Monday. On tap is our big season preview. Alan and I will break down the Gator roster, position groups, depth chart. We'll break down the Ole Miss game like we always do, perhaps what we're maybe nowadays most known for. Uh, taking a look at what Lane Kiffin has done on film elsewhere, giving the game plan, what we think we should attack, what we should expect Old Miss to attack. Obviously, we're very, very excited to get back into that side of things. Alan, any closing thoughts? Man, it feels great to be on the cusp of SEC football. Uh, I haven't really let myself get too excited up until right now um, in this, these couple of days as we've gotten a couple of weeks of college football underneath our belt. But, man, it's going to be great if and when those games get kicked off next week. Uh, can't wait for it. We're looking forward to spending the rest of the season with you. As always, if you have any feedback on today's episode or anything in general, please reach out to us. We will reply to all of you. Until next Monday, hope you all have a great week and enjoyed listening to this show. <laughs>